The Second Realm After having defined the boundaries and the objectives of a necessary strategy, the creation of a second realm, it is time to look into the implementation. Several past and existing groups serve as inspiration to us in imagining of a future for free men. However, they should not serve as blueprints, only as examples to learn from. We will have to do some things differently from things anyone has done before. As an inspirational excursion, let us look at several of these examples. Organized crime groups. Everyone knows the Italian Mafia, the Yakuza, Triads, and outlaw motorcycle gangs from news coverage. What is often overlooked is that these organizations are not simple chaotic gangs but often exhibit a long history and their own kind of society. The Mafia, as an example, is primarily a loose-knit network of independent gangs that pay tribute to their dons and receive protection and their own conflict resolution system in return. Their aim is to limit conflict within groups and not resort to violence when other means of conflict resolution are available. They operate their own title system of territories and markets. They provide services for communication and reputation, and they foster the division of labor through specialization. One could define the Mafia as an organized crime business association based on a shared ethical background. Similarly, the triads are built on ethnicity, Han Chinese, and sharing a cultural narrative, resistance to the Manchu rule. They have been around for centuries, mostly by establishing an integrated society and trying to limit their activities to inter-triad conflict, exploiting street criminals and focusing on less public crime. A similar pattern of social narrative, ethnic focus, and well-controlled intervention into the public realm shows itself with the Yakuza. They even put a strong focus on being recognizable by the public. While the previous three examples cover older organizations, outlaw motorcycle gangs are a more recent phenomena. They openly display their outlaw image as part of their culture, create their own social norms, and use their own form of justice. All the previous examples share some characteristics in operation and organization that can serve as hints to what successful parallel structures need. First, they are all based on their own independent culture and values. They are not chaotic and lawless, but have their own laws that are often stricter and more conservative than mainstream culture. For example, the Yakuza forbid their members to partake in theft. The Mafia punishes members for adultery, and all of them take oaths and vocal contracts very seriously. Another common characteristic is that these groups usually try to limit violence to their own community instead of spreading chaos. This has two reasons. Obviously, this limits the attention of law enforcement and public opinion that could make their business harder but these people also understand themselves as being part of their local community, 
which they often take effort to protect and help. This has the positive side effect of gaining public support within their territorial presence. Contrary to popular opinion, these groups are not hierarchical command and control structures. Subgroups are often autonomous and do not follow top-down planning. Instead, they share part of their profit with the upper hierarchy in return for specialized services, investment, and justice provision. Often these groups have to answer to their leaders, primarily for causing too much trouble, being too violent, or interfering with other subgroups' business. Apart from that, they are highly independent. The last commonality to point out is that these groups control locations, like clubhouses, offices, restaurants, or similar places where they can meet and conduct their business outside of public view, in which they protect against surprise raids or infiltration by round-the-clock staffing, alarms, posts, guards, and security technology. Surely these groups conduct business that is highly unethical and employ methods that conflict with the rules of engagement we are limited to. Nevertheless, they also provide some hints for long-term stability of outlaw organizations. These are 1. They define and nurture their own parallel culture and society. 2. They follow a least intervention policy concerning outsiders, especially in the realms of violence. 3. Local autonomy for subgroups protects them against decapitation and maximizes their flexibility. 4. They create a positive image in their local community through acts of aid and relief. 5. Temporary autonomous locations provide them with protected space to conduct their business. These locations often exist long enough to justify them as semi-permanent. 6. Using specialization and division of labor, they create an internal market for the provision of common services required throughout their subgroups. 7. They all have a high focus on operating their own independent internal justice systems and legal code. 8. Because of their outlaw nature, they have to maintain their own security and defense operations against other outlaw organizations that intrude on their turf or prove hostile. We can see that these groups are faced with similar problems to those we face, spatial, cultural, and institutional, and they have developed ways of meeting these challenges. Below, some of these solutions are explored in detail and adapted to our specific obstacles, resources, and rules of engagement. Furthermore, some additional and necessary components for the second realm are presented. Together, these form the foundation of a workable model for the parallel society we require. Temporary Autonomous Zones Revised Though this is doing some violence to Hakim Bey's original definition, a temporary autonomous zone is a space or territory that temporarily eludes the control of a generally recognized government. There are several examples of this which differ in their autonomy or duration 
from wholly independent permanent zones to only short-lived simulated autonomy. The oldest of these examples can be found in Middle Ages, Europe, in the form of ghettos, which not only served as a place to concentrate on wanted social groups, but gave those groups internal autonomy in the form of their own tax and justice systems. Most important in this respect are the ghettos of the Jewish diaspora. Another example can be found today in Latin America, where favelas not only are excluded from receiving official government services, but also constitute permanent autonomous zones in which government force plays a role only during high-level raids, but not on a daily basis. In the same category, we find squatted skyscrapers in several Latin American cities that have not been entered by any state agent for official functions for years. Kualun Walled City was another example of such a semi-permanent autonomous zone until its demolition in 1993. Located in unclaimed territory at the border of British Hong Kong, with a footprint of roughly a third of a square kilometer, it had been a largely ungoverned place since about 1950 and was home to over 33,000 people. This concept and the various examples of its real-life implementation are of enormous importance to our strategy, being one of the primary solutions for the spatial problem. Temporary Autonomous Zones, or TAS, give us the opportunity for our culture to exist in physical space, allowing us to conduct our business, organize our social relationships, and to handle conflicts in the way we think to be right. However, our autonomous zones are sometimes too limited in time. We need to follow a foreign policy that increases their duration and makes them safe places for social and business activities. For this, there exist two general methods. The first involves a temporary autonomous zone being set up in secret, hidden from the attention of the surrounding state. While this can work for a while, it is very limited, since eventually the place will become known and additional means of stability required. The second method focuses on reaching an informal toleration by state authorities. For this, such a zone must meet three criteria. First, the zone may not become a nuisance for neighbors, nor be known as the source for trouble for people and property outside the zone. This specifically includes that the property rights of the territory must be respected and agreement reached with the owners before conducting any autonomous activities there. Any justification for third-party influence must be prevented. Second, the zone and its inhabitants must strictly adhere to the principle, what happens in the zone stays in the zone meaning that all conflict must be solved without the intervention of outside law enforcement. This implies that internal troublemakers have to be dealt with immediately before conflict can escalate. In addition, state agents and proponents must be discouraged from visiting the place. Usually this happens by not inviting persons of questionable reputation or known friends of the state. Third. The cost of intervention by any outside party must be increased so much that it becomes unjustified 
and that it is more profitable for the attacker to look the other way. While bribes are a common method to reach this goal, a further tactic promises success. Conceal, know, delay, defend, destroy, recover. First, conceal any information about what happens within the zone from outside surveillance. This requires the employment of access control to keep potential threats from entering the area, as well as countermeasures against signals surveillance from within and especially from the outside. For example, such a place should not have attributable communication lines connecting it to the world, but instead use anonymization technology to conceal the content and source of its communication. Furthermore, the area should not be observable from the outside, and special attention should be given to watch for surveillance attacks. Second, one needs to know when a physical attack, a raid, against the place is in preparation or ongoing. This requires ways to keep an eye on the surroundings and to have an alarm system that can warn everyone within the area that an attack is imminent. Third, delaying the attacker with passive means to prevent him from successfully executing a surprise attack. This usually involves multiple barriers, such as several reinforced doors that need to be broken through before the main area of interest can be reached. This is necessary to enable the current occupants of the temporary autonomous zone to fourth, defend the place. While this is optional against a state attacker, it will become a necessity against raids by non-state actors like gangs and other kinds of violent organized crime that hope to find valuables or claim territory. In case of non-state actors, defense by deterrence can prove profitable. This can be done by displaying that both alarm systems and ways of delaying are present. For example, closed-circuit television systems and barbed wire barriers. Next, any attacker must always be unsuccessful in reaching the objective of his attack. This usually means that anything that could be of interest to the attacker must be destroyed or removed. This serves a double purpose. On the one hand, it discourages the attacker and others after him from attacking such an area again because the cost of attack surpasses any profit gained from it. On the other hand, it serves to keep any valuable information from the attackers. It keeps them away from anything that could be used to either plan future attacks or serve as evidence in trials against zone occupants. In the case of black market activities, the product must be separated from the merchant so that ownership cannot be proven and the merchant prosecuted. For this to be successful, anti-surveillance measures must be taken seriously. Last, it is necessary to not give up the strategy after the first successful attack. Any operation must be committed to recovery to be stable in the long term. While scare-off attacks can be profitable for the attacker if the strategy is dropped afterwards, repeated attacks quickly become problematic in regards to both cost and public opinion. It is very important to emphasize that we are not talking about a military compound that has been created to fend off an attack. Instead, the goal of our proposal is to create areas that make successful repeat attacks for profit or evidence very costly and less attractive.
Any kind of direct, open battle with state actors will lead to defeat and loss of life and freedom. Instead, our goal is to keep evidence out of the hands of the attackers. The only situation in which a standoff can be profitable is against non-state violent criminals. For our purposes, such a temporary autonomous zone can range from business clubs of a semi-permanent nature to street markets that only last a few hours. The security requirements for different kinds of zones may differ significantly according to the risks they face. For most operations, a well-run restaurant with a back room and 24-7 staff can be sufficient. In any case, the tactical principles mentioned above should be kept in mind. The primary purpose of a temporary autonomous zone in our strategy remains to keep evidence out of the hands of attackers and to have a secure place for our culture and business. As further inspiration, these zones can serve as not just a place for social activity, but also for protection of goods and places of business. Another example for its use are trading posts, where one-to-one -one business that has to be conducted in person takes place, or temporary autonomous markets that open merchant activity to our sub-society. Furthermore, these places can be used as agadir, traditional installations to store valuables securely. Additional methods for operating those places can be explored, but they are purely tactical and specific to the use in question. Thus, we leave them as an exercise to the reader and to other publications. Beyond Physicality Towards Information One of the greatest advantages of temporary autonomous zones is the ability to live as if you are free because you are, at least at that place and time. This advantage is not only true for physical places, but also for digital places. While the term digital place is misleading because the physicality of the digital realm is negligible, it can nevertheless serve some of the same purposes that a physical TAS can fulfill. Creating a digital autonomous zone, a permanent digital autonomous zone, allows us to socialize, communicate and trade within an environment that can be highly protected against third-party involvement and coercion through technology and cryptography. Here, people can talk to each other as if the state did not exist. They can prepare or even conduct trades without having to spend a single thought on the legal realm their physical body resides in. A large portion of our life that is not tolerated by the surrounding society can be conducted in the safety of cipher space. Since anonymizing technology and cryptography can separate our coercible body from our acting mind and identity, we have the ability to experiment with new cultural, social, and legal forms here, without the risk of being locked up in jail or being scoffed at. That said, Digital autonomous zones cannot replace the spatial aspects of our humanity. It is hard to have a drink in cyberspace. You cannot look into each other's faces during a negotiation. And only digital goods can be transacted directly. When we combine digital and physical autonomous zones, the best of the two worlds can be combined, using digital technology for negotiations and ad hoc meetings, while using physical autonomous zones to hand over the goods or to have the drink together. This is crucial for social binding. Often, 
the riskiest parts of a transaction. Handing over the money and enforcing contracts can be transferred to cypherspace, where protection is assured through the use of very strong mathematics. We will go into some of the necessary technologies below. Combining physical and digital autonomous zones thus provides us with a wide array of protection methods that allow us to act freely, because we are free. The Future The full impact of autonomous zones will show itself in the near future. Technologies are changing optimal business sizes and the number and diversity of products and actors required for a functioning market. At this time, it is difficult for us to be self-sufficient in our free zones. In the future, we will not only have the ability to be self-sufficient, if we want to, but we may be forced to rely much more on ourselves due to social collapse in the first realm. There are several technologies and economic trends that should be kept on the radar of any anarcho-capitalist. Two of these technologies are the advent of various kinds of urban farming especially industrial vertical urban farming, which promises to make food production for many thousand consumers possible and economical in a single skyscraper, and microfabbing. Microfabbing is the automated production of parts through means of 3D printing, without the need of special tool development. This will allow the download of construction plans from the Internet and subsequent printout of complex geometries with 3D printers that do not require any attention during production. The number of base materials available for this method is increasing rapidly and will soon permit anyone with the right skills to compete with specialized, high-capital production facilities with a fraction of both risk and investment. These and other technologies reinforce a trend that can be seen in growing parts of the Western economies, and that is the move from mass consumer culture to a prosumer culture in which many more people are self-employed. Artisans' shops return to the urban environment and mass products lose their charm. When we combine autonomous zones with changes in economic and technological fields, as well as changes in social composition, it is easy to envision micro-territories becoming attractive again. This will be the great opportunity for us to sow the seeds of liberty into growing parts of the population without falling for the fallacy of masses. But, for this to be successful, our activities have to begin far in advance. We must show models that can be built upon, and structures that have already weathered a few storms. Our model should be seen as proven, workable, or even attractive. A few thoughts on securing trade. Tradecraft basics. There is little question that trade, and any other social interaction, must be protected against third-party intrusion by coercion, theft, or similar violation. We are faced with an additional threat, simply because we exist and interact outside the system that the host state permits us. This threat is rooted in our opposition to the justice provision mandated by the state. On the one hand, we are unable to use the state's justice system as a remedy against violations we experience from outsiders, which requires us to have our own means of defending against third-party aggression and achieve justice if that defense fails. 
we need our own justice system and enforcement mechanisms. On the other hand, the state's justice system and law enforcement branches are opposed to the existence of our systems and the actions we partake in outside their claimed realm. We thus face the state trying to intrude into our affairs and to punish us for not obeying him or hiding from his agents. The latter problem, persecution by the state, deserves some extra thought. How do we protect ourselves against an opponent that powerful? Let us introduce a few concepts here that can help us design methods to counter this threat. Pseudonymity, one of the methods of control that are used by our opponents, that permeate the mainstream culture and is tied into most institutions of cooperation in the use of true names, our official, state-sanctioned, widely known identity of which each of us shall only have one, and which ties all of our actions together. Surely having and using names is a requirement in many social and commercial interactions. Without it, we cannot easily find each other again, address each other, or have a history that enables others to assess us. However, there is no inherent necessity for these names to be the ones our parents gave us at birth, or to be underwritten by the state, or even that each one of us carries only one name at one time and forever. Pseudonymity is the concept of having alternative names and identities that we reveal as they are needed, that are attached to their own histories and reputations, breaking the spell of our true name and using self-chosen, task-specific identities enables us to limit the ability of our opponents to attach all our actions to the leash that binds us to them, and, at the same time, utilize the functions that names and identities provide. These pseudonyms do not need to be registered by the state, nor do they need to be tied to our true identity, as long as specific methods of assurance and enforcement are available. Anonymity. Contrary to modern propaganda, there is nothing wrong with anonymity per se. Many of our actions and trades do not need to be revocable, nor do they have the ability to cause any significant harm to others. In these cases, it is perfectly fine to not have any name or identity at all. Given the right structure of interaction, there is no need for attribution at all. The most prominent example for an area where anonymity is practical and useful is in digital communication. While we might choose to be pseudonymous for the parties we want to be known by, all other parties should not know who is acting. For those latter parties, we stay anonymous. Opaqueness Most of us have been trained to view any secret and non-transparency as a dire threat. Thinking about this should quickly reveal that such a broad opposition to secrets is an idiocy, lacking any justification. Due to the totalitarian tendencies of mainstream culture and political organization, the desire to control others, secrets have become a thing to abhor. Secrets themselves are never a problem. It is the fraud and coercion they could hide that are the source of danger. When we design our systems in such a way that the parties directly and voluntarily involved are the only ones that can be affected in any relevant way, 
it becomes clear that those parties can keep a secret for themselves against all other parties that are not directly involved. Thus, opaqueness of action in relation to non-affected parties can protect us from third-party intervention and punishment without inviting additional dangers. There is no justification for anyone but buyer and seller to know who is selling, what to whom. No one needs to know what person A tells person B if no other person's justified interest is at peril. Since we have used the word justified or justification repeatedly above, let us be clear what it means. Our knowledge of actions, or our involvement in them, is only justified if they involve our property or conflicting agreements we have with any of the acting parties. Anything that does not involve either of these, property or contract, is simply none of our business. Hiding actions and information from the view of third parties prevents them from gaining an information advantage that can be used against us either by collecting evidence or by discovering leads that enable them to intervene in later situations. Untraceability While this is a special case of opaqueness, and thus already covered before, it deserves some specific mention. Untraceability refers to the function that the movement of an object from one owner or possessor to another, from one location to another, or from one condition to another remains hidden from any party, not justly required to have this information. This keeps attackers from discovering information by linking various trades or pieces of information together and thus again serves to minimize evidence that can be collected by them or leads to be followed. Compartmentalization Again, it is the all-too-present totalitarian and collectivist attitude that lurks within our subconscious that brought us busybodies, command and control hierarchies, and a quirky feeling when we are neither asked for our permission nor involved in everything, even if we have no justified need to be included. Instead, we should begin to appreciate individual initiative and the competition and the competition of ideas and solutions without everything being centrally or collectively planned, widely reported, and neatly synchronized. While our human curiosity longs for input, it is often more profitable to separate our actions from those of others in such a way that an outside third party is kept from seeing the whole picture or piecing enough together to act against us. Deniability if all previous efforts to keep our opponents from getting a clear picture of what we do fail, it is necessary to at least keep them from using this information against us as individuals. This is where deniability comes in, and also puts all other methods into context. Being able to plausibly deny our involvement in a specific action hinders a third party from confidently pointing the finger at us, so we can escape damage when everything else has failed. The concepts introduced above, deniability, opaqueness, untraceability, compartmentalization, anonymity, and pseudonymity, applied in that order, are the antidote to the imaginary omniscience of our opponents. Instead of dispersing information far and wide and leaving behind traces with any move, the foundation is need to know. 
It is necessary to limit information to the bare minimum required for the invited and affected parties. The information justly required can of course differ from case to case, but uninvited and unaffected parties should always be prevented from acquiring any meaningful information or deducing potentially harmful conclusions. The art of implementing the objectives of need to know is commonly known as tradecraft. Using the strategy of minimized information comes with some risks of its own. First, it can be counterproductive for social cohesion within our subculture and social groups. This requires us to not have paranoia rule us and security to become a religion. One countermeasure against this risk is specialization described in the next section. The second risk is that we overlook that sometimes evidence is required for the feasibility of our internal justice system. There are two remedies against this. One is that we must design methods of interaction that drastically limit the potential for criminal or otherwise harmful behavior. Some of these methods are mentioned further below. Another way is to recall that evidence does not have to be publicly available without a party announcing what wrongdoings took place. We can design our systems in such a way that only affected parties can make recourse to evidence revealed on demand so that it can be presented in mediation or arbitration proceedings. It is up to us to redesign ways of interaction based not on collectivist thought but on individual responsibility. While this may sound impossible, it is not. Many of these methods and processes were in use before strong states and collectivist culture took over. We just have to rediscover them.